Welcome to Million Hours Podcast. I'm Keith Jones. In this edition, I'm talking to a master of reinvention. For 10 years, Roger Hyde worked at a Buddhist monastery where he became an expert in meditation. He's since worked in security, cyber defense, and bespoke travel. He now runs Julabab, creating unique expeditions for discerning and wealthy clients. Roger, welcome to Million Hours Podcast. If you want to classify a monastery as being somewhere that monks and nuns live, then they were monasteries. So mm-hmm. In the UK, in the Europe, in the US, they, they call them meditation retreat centres. So I've spent a lot of time in meditation retreat centres, yeah. What, what got you into, into that? Um, there was a, a very, very good-looking um, Swiss lady. Uh-huh. You could call her a siren, who was uh, very beguiling and... Um, and delightful when we first met and we had a whirlwind romance and she lived in one of these Buddhist centers and uh, so I met her and uh, one thing led to another and less than a year later she had our son ah <laughs> but by by that time um, um, anyway we uh, we didn't we'd split up before she realized she was pregnant and uh, it was it, it didn't last very long our whirlwind romance but my son is now 23 and he's a fantastic young man and doing really well, he's yeah. a filmmaker in Switzerland. But um, that's what got me hooked and that's what got me involved. And the original connection was from a Canadian guy I met traveling when I was 18. I met him in a youth hostel in Loch Lomond, Scotland. And uh, we kept in touch and he ended up living in one of these meditation centers in East Yorkshire. Uh-huh. And I went and visited him thinking there'd be lots of hippies and lots of weed and lots of good times and actually it was a very austere very um, monastic regulated rigid environment but I was very attracted to the Buddhist logic which I think is sound it's very sound logic and uh, and I over the course of 16 years I spent maybe nine or ten years living full-time in meditation retreat centers in Europe and the US and helping develop meditation retreat centers all over the world for this particular Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist tradition um, and I was teaching, I was administrating, I was um, pho- photographing, I was creating websites, I was doing technology work with them, and it was all on a volunteer basis. So for 16 years I had to um, find other ways of making a living um, with no qualifications, having been thrown out of high school. I was landscaping in Canada, roofing in America, photographing in Australia, doing all kinds of unusual um, ways to make a living all over the world during that period. Mm-hmm. And I ended up bodyguarding, which is what se- what, how I sort of segued into, into having my own travel business, was the very unusual connections led me to being one of a very small number of Buddhist bodyguards in the world, <laughs> a very select crew. And um, so I was doing some high-level bodyguarding for, the, for, for a while I en- and I ended up looking after a Qatari prince on a big Africa project mm. and from that I ended up um, moving full time into travel in about 2012 right. so yeah from the meditation centers to flying around on private jets and whatever yeah, it's all a bit of an unusual all people always say to me well <coughs> I want to do your job how did you get to do this how did you get to do this job there's no Mm-hmm. It's a very, very unconventional job, and anybody involved in what it is we do at this level, of which there aren't many, 
all came at it from a very, very different, unusual route, mm. journey, because mm. it's a very unusual destination, I mm. think. What mm. we're, is we're doing is not normal. It's, it mm. is unusual. Mm. So it's not uncommon for there to be an unusual story associated with somebody's job in high-end mm. travel, which mm. is what we do now. Mm. What do you make of the these uh, meditation apps these days calm I think they're fantastic um, having taught on many different levels for a long time including lots of different retreats weekend courses my takeaway after having met this tradition these teachings f more than 25 years ago my takeaway is that people make most progress by applying the very very simple um, non religious secular techniques of breathing and creative visualization which anybody can do i got put onto headspace and these sorts of apps as soon as they came out and i had a little bit of communication with the founder of headspace and congratulate him and i think it's a fantastic thing i mean he comes out of the kagyu buddhist tradition he was a monk mm -hmm. he was also a circus performer before that so once again there's somebody with an unusual mm. journey mm. to get to his destination this is Andy, Andy, Andy Puddlecombe, yeah. yeah, yeah. So for me, bringing meditation, very simple um, techniques to the masses is wonderful because if everybody can make a connection between the state of your mind and the state of your world, the world for sure would be a better place because mm. people would put more emphasis on improving their internal environment than changing their external environment mm. in ways that don't bring them happiness. Mm. I was relieved a few years ago reading the Dalai Lama Okay. who I think described that our purpose is to be happy. So, you know, the idea that one is pursuing happiness is sounds a bit sort of self-absorbed. Uh, uh, yeah, being self-absorbed. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, everybody's looking for a meaning in their life. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we've got to start with um, being happy ourselves. You're right, because mm -hmm. if you're happy yourself, then you can mm -hmm. maybe help other people also mm -hmm. be happy. That's mm -hmm. a wonderful thing, mm -hmm. if you can do it. Mm -hmm in a genuinely kind, loving, compassionate, and meaningful way. So what yeah, he's right. What would those that six-week period look like for someone who wanted to get into meditation? And you said you, know, you can learn enough in six weeks to become have a okay, lifetime so practice. But would so that on be the, daily? On the, or? No, no. On the, first, on the first Tuesday night at 7.30 after a busy day at work and you feed the kids and one of your friends has dragged you along to a five-pound, two-hour class at Haverford mm. Town Hall in West Wales on mm -hmm. a rainy February evening. Mm -hmm. So you go in there and somebody like me sat at the front explaining this is the beginning of a six-week course of basic Buddhist meditation and uh, philosophy, basically. Mm. Okay, maybe I'm not interested in the Buddhism, but I'll give it a go. Mm. So somebody like myself is explaining the, the connection between the body and the mind. And... Um, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight is maybe um, the connection between the mind, your state of mind. And, y you know, maybe they call about they talk about disease as well. The diseases of mm. the body come sure. from diseases of the mind and the connection between your body your mind and your world. Mm. So y but then let's start with a basic breathing meditation. <coughs> Not quite sure. We bring some people bring cushions. Some people bring yoga mats. Actually, we just sit on chairs. Mm. You sit with a straight back and put your feet on the floor and. Make sure you've got a straight back, and uh, mm. um, and then you you you, you, you start really relaxing the body, and then you turn your attention to your your breathing, 
and you, you, you through some creative visualization techniques you focus on your breath and in that within 20 minutes people are more focused on their breathing than pizza or what's going on later or the stress of the home and this and that and then you give your talk and then at the end you do another short meditation mm. what you've what you've achieved on that first evening is hopefully people f people feel more relaxed they feel more calm my teacher a tibetan monk he wrote, um, when the turbulence of distracting thought subsides and the mind becomes still, a, a great happiness and contentment naturally arises from within. So when people's minds settle, they are naturally happy and they are naturally content. That's very, very simple. Mm -hmm. It's irrefutable. If you have a settled mind, you naturally feel happy and content. Mm -hmm. How do you settle your mind? Well, by focusing on the breath, which is a neutral object, for five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, your mind is naturally more settled, more peaceful. Mm. You are naturally more happy, mm. more content. Mm. That's a wonderful thing. Mm. There's no hippy-trippy ring, ringing bells or drums or anything unusual by just focusing on your breathing. It's a neutral object. You take it everywhere with you. It's not like listening to whale song or staring at a candle. Mm -hmm. You can take those things away. You can't take away your breath. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to do it every day, come back next Tuesday. Maybe if they've done it every day, come back next Tuesday, maybe you've got more of their attention. Mm. And then over the course of six weeks, you can maybe, after six weeks, you can guide somebody through maybe a 45-minute meditation mm -hmm. that's no more trippy, no more complex mm. than what it was you were doing on the first night. It's just maybe building on those steps. But after six weeks, somebody has got a very, very clear visceral understanding mm. that their happiness and contentment is dependent on their state of mind. Mm. We spend so such a small amount of time tra trying to train our mind, yeah. really. Yeah, I'm yeah. sat under my pull-up bars here because yeah. I'm training for a big expedition at the yeah. moment. I've got to get my my body fit. Yeah. Where's the encouragement? Where's the kind of systemic cultural encouragement to work on one's mind? There yeah. isn't any. Yeah. On the contrary, yeah. it's ignored. And yeah. uh, I mean, you go around the world. Just, we've just been talking about a trip to Vietnam. You go around the world, and other cultures they don't ignore the mind. Yeah. And actually, quite often they're happier cultures. I've just come back from Japan. Uh -huh. Incredible, incredibly yeah. happy. But generally, you know, the the places I've been in Bhutan this year as well, and uh, it's a phenomenal place. I realise this week it's just been gained number one country in the world for uh, visiting. But also, mm -hmm. they say it's the happiest country in the world, and I mm -hmm. can I can understand why that would be. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a Tibetan Buddhist tradition there as well, and uh, it's one uh, genuinely. Uh, people always say to me, "Well, where's the best place you've ever been?" And uh, until I went to Bhutan, I couldn't really say because I've been to so many wonderful places. It mm. very much depends. But mm. having been to Bhutan with the adventure, with the culture, with the great places to stay, with the great people, I'd say Bhutan. Mm. Why? Because actually, there's a great vibe there. Why? Mm. Because the people are happy. Well, wow, that's wonderful. How did you transition from this to bodyguarding? So How did that happen? At a, I was helping out. I was based in a meditation center in East Yorkshire for quite a long time and mm helping develop a Buddhist center in Darlington and somebody, an ex-military dude turned up on the doorstep once again, got beguiled by one of the ladies living there and he, he got involved <laughs> in that Buddhist center. But he got into meditation through martial arts. So he was ex-military, martial arts, interested in meditation, knocked on the door of the local Buddhist center. And me and him connected. He was actually a bodyguard for the Tibetan monk during the festivals and I was taking pictures so I was taking pictures of him and I sent him some pictures me and him got connected and um, one of my sidelines was doing websites 
and uh, uh, and I m pointed out his website was rubbish. And he said, well, do me another website. So I ended up taking photographs and making videos on bodyguard training courses. And I went on so many bodyguard training courses over the course of a couple of years that I ended up helping assist on the bodyguard training courses. And, um, and through that assisting, I ended up doing more operations. And um, that was how I got into actually operating. We were doing surveillance work, um, training, close protection to military teams around the world and also providing close protection services like bodyguarding and um, due diligence and asset and asset tracking and things like this so I got into some quite unusual technology aspects as well to do with tracking and remote communications and all that stuff so it was really interesting they've got a pretty good grip on the mind who these special forces well, guys what was really interesting was uh, actually on these bodyguard training courses uh, I, 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 we did teach meditation mm. and um, because for example most bodyguarding is generally fairly mundane and you have to keep your mind quite active because maybe you stood outside a hotel door for eight hours a day or whatever mm. if everything starts going off then the more peaceful and calm and aware you are the better you are at your job so on that basis we would teach these very very simple techniques on bodyguard training courses now on a Tuesday night in Haverford West, you can guide a group of 20 people through a breathing meditation. Maybe one can say 40 to 60% of people there are going to have a great experience. And a few people are not going to have any feeling at all. And some people are going to maybe be a bit ambivalent. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching ex-special forces or kind of um, these sort of very, very alpha male um, powerful guys, my success rate of people having a really powerful experience was considerably higher i'd say 80 to 90 percent would have a, a really profound experience and i think because they're used to discipline they're used to training they're used to being told what to do um but also they have very very powerful energy and um meditation is essentially about uh, transforming energy so how did you transition from that world into the travel i guess is so um, I was tasked, uh, we were doing quite a bit of stuff with a big concierge company in London mm -hmm. and um, subcontracting to this security company. So we were, I would travel to DC with Lady Rothschild once who was having lunch with Obama, things like that. So mm -hmm. I get a call the night before, say, can you travel to DC tomorrow to travel with Lady Rothschild? There's a number of Lady Rothschilds, I think, so I'm not putting no, anybody in there. <laughs> but yeah, so she would go and have lunch with Obama, and I'd make sure that she was safe from her place in Kensington to handing over to a car in, at Dulles Airport in D.C., and then I'd fly straight home again. So we were unusual, unusual projects like that would come up. So one project that came up was a five-week African safari for a Qatari sheikh. I don't think Africa's seen anything like it since Hemingway or maybe... <laughs> You know, something like this. Mm. It's a very unusual journey that this guy was planning on making. And I was tasked with making sure that he was going to be safe along the way, along with another colleague. So I ended up doing that. That was in 2010. The guy who organized that journey also traveled on that with him, making mm -hmm. sure it was all safe and uh, happening. And um, me and him got on really well. And um, we kept in touch. And within a couple of years, I'd segued from focusing on security to focusing on travel working with him and I worked with him for three or four years and um, ultimately I ended up uh, working mainly with Middle Eastern royals all over the world on a full-time contract mm -hmm. doing 
six, seven-figure vacations with private jets, super yachts, on virtually every continent. And um, because of the full-time nature of that, my home life um, suffered. So four years ago, I I, um, I moved in to have just doing it on my own, so I had a little bit more flexibility. Mm-hmm. So since four years, for the last four years, I've I've had my own business offering these very high-end adventures to very unusual places doing very unusual things with the best people in the world my business is called Doolabab which is it's an unusual name Doolabab yeah <laughs> it's called um, it's actually three Tibetan words D-U-L-A-B-A-B it means now is the time in Tibetan mm-hmm. Doolabab now is the time to now is the time do yeah. the do so the it trip. comes from a prayer <laughs> it, you uh-huh. know an invocation to you know for immediate kind of positive transformation but um from working with super yachts, private jets on very, very profligate, hugely expensive vacations, are moving around the planet to some of the most uh, stunning, vulnerable, beautiful destinations. Um, when I set my own business up, I wanted it to be more responsible and sustainable in its environmental approach. And uh, if people are going to travel in private jets and super yachts, helicopters, fast boats anyway, which they are, um, at least where we can, let's work constructively and meaningfully with non-profits to, and also make sure that everything is carbon balanced mm-hmm. in, a re- in a, a way that at that time nobody in high-end travel was even thinking. So I, took a, I was with a princess once in Galapagos on a boat and she was kind of with some cousins and she wasn't particularly stimulated because the cousins weren't as exciting as she would have liked them to have been and she said to me you work with the mountain rescue team in England don't you and at the time I did and I said sure and she said well I want to I come and train with you for a week and uh, we don't train princesses <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, I, re- I remembered I had a fundraising I was a fundraising officer for this mountain rescue team and um Long story short, she came and we put together an amazing program for her over the course of two different trips, as it turns out. And she had the best holidays at that time that she'd ever had. We got the RAF to fly in and winch her up. We got ex-Special Forces guys in to teach her survival techniques. We got Doug Scott, the first Englishman to climb Mount Everest, to Mm -hmm. come and climb with her Mm -hmm. for a donation to his Nepalese charity of $10,000, I think it was, or £10,000. And the mountain rescue team did very well out of it, and she did very well out of it. So I made a, a clear connection at that time, this was five or six years ago, that through working in a really creative, innovative way with nonprofits, no matter where they are, mm. one can give a, a client a unique insight and unique access. And there's many definitions of luxury, but one thing's for sure is that a unique experience and unique access for very wealthy people is definitely valued mm-hmm. because it gives them something that they, they is, is not on Google and it's not on TripAdvisor. So we don't have people coming to me saying, we want you to take us to, mm-hmm. for example, New Britain, which is an eastern Papua New Guinea. We don't have people saying that they want to go there because nobody's ever heard of it. Mm. But the diving there is some of the best diving in the world. There's cave systems there that are, there's only a few percent, a, a small percentage of the cave systems there have even been discovered, let alone explored. We've got a thousand meter vertical drops into into um, sinkholes. More people have been on the moon for sure 
than have explored these cave systems. Mm. And it's very, very easy to access these things. The, the, the forest in New Britain <coughs> is profoundly threatened by illegal Chinese mine, uh, logging. We're trying to put together a trip there at the moment that basically lays the foundation for sustainable travel industry where the local community are offered an alternative income apart from taking money from the loggers. Mm -hmm. A client who goes there will, s will inadvertently support that whether they care or not. There's no other way that we would do it. The client is having unique insight and unique access to that reef, to that jungle, to that cave system, to that culture. What an amazing experience for the right client. I guess they wel welcome the opportunity, though, to support the, the infrastructure. Nobody's, nobody's going to say yeah. they don't want to do that because yeah. it's going to give every individual a warm, fuzzy feeling whether mm. they like to accept that or not. Mm. But th the primary concern is that the clients have the be a great time. Mm. I'm not going into this with rose-tinted glasses. On the contrary, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm fully aware of sure. the nature of the people it is I'm working with. Yeah, yeah. They're human yeah. beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're not looking for this service. I think some people for sure. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the market for my business is, is there are thousands of people in the world with the inclination, the adventurous um, capacity, i.e. they're fit enough, and the means, i.e. they have enough wealth to be able to afford what it is we can do for them. Now, our budgets, are own, we, are, we give very, very transparent budgeting. Everything is very, very clear. Well, how much money we make, our commissions, da, da, da. Why our trips are expensive is because we generally will need to recon something. We have to spend sometimes mm. weeks or months planning something. That involves time. Mm. Um, often it involves helicopters. Um, there might be some boats involved. These things all add up. Mm. And um, we're doing a big project in Guyana, South America, in December, for example, which uses... We need to get 600 kilos of equipment plus 11 individuals on and off a 9,000-foot tabletop tapui like a lost world uh, tabletop mountain on the Brazil-Guyana-Venezuela Brazil border. Mm. We need to sh heli-shuttle 11 individuals plus 600 kilos of climbing gear up to 9,000 feet from an mm -hmm. airstrip 45 kilometers away that we get to on a fixed wing, which is two and a half hours from Georgetown. It's an awful lot of logistics. Mm. The costs associated with that, the aviation bill alone is... A lot. More than $50,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did a recon down there. The recon bill was $52,000 just for the recon. So mm. there's no way around that. If you're going to... We're going there to do something that's never been done before. We're climbing a jungle tower that's never been climbed before. There's a reason why it's never been climbed before. It's because it's very, very remote. Mm. And it would take five days to walk in from a very remote village to get there. Mm -hmm. That's why it's not been done before. Mm -hmm. We're not walking in, we're flying in with helicopters. Mm -hmm. That's why it's expensive. Mm. You know, you can mm -hmm. sit on top of a dune in Namibia in a bathtub and drink champagne. Okay, that's great. That's mm. what other people are doing. That's not where... There's plenty of people doing that really, really well. Mm. And if somebody wants to float over the Serengeti in a hot air balloon... There's not a whole lot I can do with that. Mm. That's an experience that dozens of companies can provide you with. Mm -hmm. If you want something beyond that, mm. um, come to us. Now, if you want to have a real African experience, let's, um, let's go and save some elephants. Let's mm. go in on an anti-poaching um, um, patrol. Let's go and uh, 
you know, if you just want to look at animals, well, let's go and see our closest living relative in in the in the middle of the Congo, the bonobo monkey, which is a is a it's a they call them pygmy chimpanzees. Um, they're literally our closest living relatives. These things. It's a matriarchal society living in the middle of the Congo. It's, it's not on any tourist infrastructure. There's no r- tourist radar anywhere near there. Mm-hmm. We go and work with a, an institute who are doing the research on these beautiful little animals. You want to go and have an experience in Africa? Well, let's go and let's let's have that conversation. You mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. while we're there, we can fly out to the coast of Gabon and see the hippos mm-hmm. surfing in the Atlantic Ocean mm-hmm. on the beaches of Gabon. That's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. I don't know, hear too many people talking about the surfing hippos <laughs> in Gabon, but I'm curious about going there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you can you can make that as comfortable or luxurious as you want, but the real luxury is in the uniqueness of that particular sure. journey sure. and, and uh, to make it comfortable for a guest and mm-hmm. to give the institute who are doing the research enough of a enough incentive mm-hmm. to give you that insight and access. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you're looking at two or three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. It's very niche. Very niche, <laughs> maybe too niche. But, <laughs> so, but th- for me, there is definitely a market for it. Yeah. There's no doubt about so it. So how do you find that customer? Those well, the thing is, it's... Few uh, and far between. We don't, we don't talk about it. This is the first media I've, I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't... Nobody really knows what we're doing. I don't talk... I like to... I want to be known for what it is we do, not what it is we say we do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of companies out there putting out press releases left, right, and center about all these amazing concepts that they have, mm-hmm. many of which are never going to come to fruition. But we don't do that. And most journalists are attuned to that as well. But I see articles popping up in the Telegraph or online and Rob Report and Condé Nast about all this weird and wonderful stuff that's happening in high-end travel, a lot of which I know is just smoke and mirrors. And that's Mm. kind of one of the things I was happy to move on from in the security industry was just smoke and mirrors and a lot of BS. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to be known for what it is we do. Carbon balancing. We're part of 1% for the planet. We're part of the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund. We're putting our money where our mouth is. And, the benef- and the, there is tangible benefit to communities and environments around the world through us, our clients having been to these places. Mm-hmm. Once we've got a f- couple more years behind us, then I can more confidently shout from the rooftops that everybody else should at least consider this, this method, this approach, because people are happy to pay it. Mm-hmm. So how do we find clients? It's all about word of mouth yeah, and trust. It's got to be word of mouth. This because yeah. it doesn't matter how many press releases, mm. how many websites, how many Instagram posts you put out there. If some, if somebody doesn't trust what it is you do, or who it is they're doing it with, they're not going to come. From a security point of view, w- around the world, if you're anonymous, private airstrips, private flights, private resources, you're not coming on anybody's radar. The threats mm. doesn't matter really where you are. There's you can mitigate threat. I guess you're the type of clients that you have. They love that anonymity. Uh, anonymity it can yeah. be can yeah. be really appealing. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So we're working in the security, you know, like if you want to, if you want to, if you're looking at this, people say, well, you deal with celebrities. Well, first of all, celebrities quite often are used to free trips. They don't like paying for anything. Mm. And if they are, then they're not maybe as wealthy as they need to be to do these sorts of trips because mm. maybe a wealthy celebrity might be worth 20 or 30 million but they're not going to want to spend three or four hundred thousand dollars on a holiday because it's still an awful lot of money Mm. so but also celebrities and a-listers it's quite often difficult working especially in security because they want to be seen Mm. the you want to go into a hotel anonymously you go in through the kitchen Mm. you go in through the back door 
no problem there's mm. no threats mm. but if they want to be seen and there's a crowd at the front door mm. well that's a problem from a security point of view because it's much easier much easier to get, keep somebody secure if they're anonymous mm. but celebrities and quite a lot of famous people they don't like to be anonymous they want to mm. be seen mm. so we gen we're not dealing with people like that mm. the people that we're dealing with are generally very down to earth mm. normal they're, they're just blessed with uh, some extraordinary resources that so mm. they can uh, indulge on these sorts of extraordinary journeys mm. and um, mm. for that they're very, you know these people that I'm dealing with are, uh, are grateful I think mm. and, and, and that's the kind of demographic we're looking for to what extent in terms of risk management for example to what extent do you work with the client before they go on a trip to make sure that they're physically up yeah. for it and for example with this guy on a project both principals are very very fit capable with a lot of adventure experience but for both of them they need more essentially rope access techniques they need to be using very simple but specific rope access methods mm -hmm. for ascending and descending very long ropes one one abseil we're doing is 500 meters for example a 500 meter rappel off the edge of a tabletop mountain with a camp on the side of it overnight We've had one training here in Mallorca over the summer. Mm -hmm. One princess came here and did that. And the next princess is completing some training immediately before the trip in the UK. And they will both be basically professionally qualified and assessed mm. and trained before departure. Mm. And um, we've got one-on-one -on -one professionals mm. working with each mm. principal on that trip. So mm. there's, um, and we have an Australian Special Forces medic at the bottom along with one of the principal security team at the bottom, mm. basically, and very, very complex protocols in place for um, extraction if mm. something goes wrong, mm. which basically involves helicopters. And mm. Mm. This is your first business of your own. What challenges have you faced and, uh, in, in terms of setting up the bu a business and a very niche business at that? The main challenge is, um, is cash flow and... Um, <laughs> for many businesses yeah, but also yeah. um the uh, the creative energy required to create something that doesn't exist it starts with mental energy because mm. the mind is the creator of all things as mm -hmm. buddha said but it starts to create something that doesn't exist it involves an awful lot of mental energy and there's an awful lot of trial and error and is it worth going to all these trade shows? Is it worth going to all these meetings? I've spent twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars trying to reel in a particular group of clients on meetings all over the world, for example, that have yet to realize any income at all. Mm. But it, maybe that's just a long burn. Mm. But that involves money. That involves investment. Mm. And where do you invest? Mm. And then it's kind of feast or famine. You get one job in, and it maybe there's ten th tens of thousands of dollars of so-called profit. Mm. But actually, that's just a <laughs> drop in the ocean for the investment that's been put in. Mm. Not only time and emotional and, mm. uh, you know, e energy and resources, um, you know, but money and, mm. uh, you know, investing my, 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 um, my family's kind of uh, destiny, really, in everything mm. we're doing. Mm. And, um, but that's um, the biggest challenge then is... Um, creating something that doesn't exist mm. and then being able to t turn that into a tangible product mm. that you can then take to market mm. to a very niche market mm. so it's 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 the, the challenges are compound mm. challenges and then switching from 
bringing new business in and then switching to I would imagine in your case delivery your you, you head up delivery I guess yeah well yeah. I mean I don't know when, you, when you're delivering you're not well that's it I mean, you know I'm just about to go away for six weeks <laughs> exactly yeah so yeah. you know I've got a sat phone I've got a mm. remote message satellite messaging service and yeah. throughout Africa most of these places are going to probably have better internet than you yeah. get in the UK but yeah. in in the jungles of Guyana yeah. I'm going to be on satcoms for a couple of weeks yeah. and uh, that's not ideal when you're trying to run a business yeah. but uh, I've got as much of my business in secure cloud as possible including my accounts and one thing I'm doing before I go away is my quarterly accounts so when my <laughs> so my accountant in the UK can yeah. log in and she can see all my receipts and that they're already up there I don't yeah. have to worry about that at the end of my financial quarter in late November when at that time I'm going to be in Namibia yeah. you know I don't have to worry about that then because I can pre-prepare that and yeah. uh, and I have good people supporting me yeah um and they can they can back me up in any admin that needs doing while I'm away. So yeah. people can monitor my emails, and um, and can can respond if something does drop in. But for some of the plates we do have spinning, I'm indicating mm. to people mm. if you do want to move on that, let's move on it quickly because mm. I'm going to be away for six weeks, and mm. that's not an incon mm. inconsiderable amount of time for mm. anybody. It's a long time. You've spent time in the Buddhist monastery, mm -hmm. become a bodyguard. Yeah. Um, worked with very high net worth individuals, yeah. celebrities. Mm. Um, been in the security world, yeah. uh, cyber security world, yeah. I guess. Um, and then ventured into being an entrepreneur and starting your own business, yeah. operating your own business. So Million Hours community, in a lot of cases, they are getting to this point in midlife where perhaps have been in a career right. 30 years or, or whatever, doing something, whatever it is. And then, you know, what's next? Is that all there is? There's got to be more to life. You know, maybe I can do this or do that. You've reinvented yourself so yeah. many times. So reinvention is quite a, a theme, really, sure. for, for this audience. Um, so in light of where you are now and where you've come from and what, mm. what you've done, would there be any tips that you give to people who have I think uh, for me facing that it, challenge it helped um, and you can't really retrospectively do this but I got unceremoniously and very uh, in a very undignified way I got thrown out of school with no qualifications and um, and there was a lot of family trauma around the time which is one of the principal reasons why that happened but you know as a 17 18 year old with a you know an adventurous spirit just two things have happened there basically I wasn't on a, a trajectory that was preordained I think it's terrible that kids are forced to decide their future at the age of 18 whether they want to be a lawyer a doctor or uh, you know and I was brought up in northeast England where my father worked his whole life in a very very boring job in the middle management of a big insurance company and it was deadly boring until he died at the age of 44 mm. So, which is actually one of the main things that happened when I was a teenager was he died very suddenly. And combine that with what I learned in Buddhism, which is a lot to do with grasping. You don't grasp, there's nothing to grasp at in life. In any, in any metaphysical sense, there's nothing to grasp at. Um, in your body, your mind, your experience, your ego, there's nothing that exists inherently from its own side. And that includes your career. So I've never grasped at being a landscape gardener or a roofer or a photographer or a web designer or a 
cyber technician or anything like this. These are all thing, things I've done, or meditation teacher. Does none of these things have any substance or meaning? And that helps. So I haven't grasped at any particular um, position. But and through that non-grasping, there is a world of opportunity. There is infinite possibilities in the moment. I get a sense there of um, you know, chill, chill out, and you know something will come your way. For um, sure, yeah. Let things happen. For sure. Take it easy. No idea. No rush. No, <laughs> there's, but but there is stress there because mm. there's tension because uh, we naturally need to grasp. Mm. So my father is in insurance and he died at 44. Mm. It's the, the 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 irony there <laughs> is not you don't you don't have to be an Englishman with a wry sense of humour to see yeah. the irony in that. Yeah. You yeah. know you're planning for the future, but he didn't have a future. Yeah. We don't know if we're in middle age. We don't know if we're in old age yeah. because it's all relative to how long our lifespan is, sure. of which we have no idea. Yeah. So am I middle age right now? You tell me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or am I at the end of my life? Yeah. No idea. Yeah. None. Yeah. But that within that space, make the most of it. Yeah. Dynamic, exciting, infinite yeah. potentials and yeah. possibilities. Yeah. So lessons there, not just for what we call our community, which is, say, over 50s, but... Um, you know, a lot of younger people are interested in what we've got to say, and no, people have no idea. Yeah, How are, yeah, are you yeah. in your middle age right yeah, now? No yeah, idea. Yeah. Because it's 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 dependent, right? Yeah, on, yeah, of course on it what? Is. <laughs> on how old the, you are when what, you croak. What's right? the end point? Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Strange. I, I'm I'm conscious of my parents were uh, 67 and 75, and I'm 63. So, I'm going to target <laughs> first target is four years away. But it's a big deal, you know. When I hit yeah. 44, it's a big deal, and yeah. I knew to the day because I calculated it because I'm a little bit obsessive about yeah. that. I calculated to the day how old my f- to the day how old my father was when he died. Yeah. And I remember thinking on that day, and I was dwelling on it on that day. And his father was 46, yeah. and I have a three-year-old daughter. Yeah. And one of the things that keeps me fit and keeps me going is I want to be there for her. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> the biggest problem is stress. That's the biggest problem, and that's yeah. something we all have to deal with. And yeah. that's where meditation can also help. Yeah. But I was never a very good Buddhist.